I think my uncle said that uh, we started this last September. So it's been about a 14, 15 month excursion through the book of Romans. So I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I hope everyone else here has at least somewhat benefited from it. I'd have to say that when you have to study through it and present it, you seem to get a lot more out of it than, at least for me, you, you learn quite a bit when you're studying through it. So I'd encourage you as, as we move past this book to really stay in the book of Romans and just ponder upon the, the doctrine and the theology that the Apostle Paul presents by the Holy Spirit. So we'll be looking at, uh, like I said, verses 17 to the end of the chapter. And if you remember last week, I will not read through the list of names again. Um, that was quite a challenge, but we got through it. Uh, just a couple of notes from last week is that in chapter 16, the Apostle Paul lists 37 names. 37, there's a couple households that he names, so it may have been more people. But about 37 names are listed in chapter 16. And we'll see here in verses 21 and 22, he's not quite done with making mention of some people um, in this final salutation. And I think the mention of all these names is demonstrable evidence of the Apostle Paul's care in which he shows the Church of Rome and even in his other letters. But there's something with a name. I think every one of us in here are kind of familiar when, whenever someone mentions our name or, or says our name, there's a, a, a feeling of gratification or satisfaction when we hear our name. Not oftentimes in a prideful situation, but if I just walk up to you, hi Jenna, how are you doing? It's a lot different than I just say, hey, how are you? Or what's up? So I think there's something to consider here for the Apostle Paul and also for us. The personalization that he shows, I think, helps us to maybe personalize our interactions with other people. But that's um, about it for that section. Let's look at uh, verses 17 to 20 here. Let me go ahead and read verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses... Contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. So this is Paul's really final warning to the church or churches. Maybe there were multiple churches in Rome. And we must remember that this was a letter written that would have been read to the congregation. So it wasn't necessarily what we're doing now, a more thorough, systematic approach where we look at it on a weekly basis. They would read the letter probably in one sitting, one or two sittings. And then they would go from there and probably study it after that, or they would study it after that. But this was read in one sitting. So you can think of chapters 1 all the way to up to this point in 16. Paul has given them all of this theology to remember. Now his final warning, his final exhortation is, I urge you, brethren. I urge you, brethren. Well, pay attention to this word here, note. What does this word note mean? It means to consider, to take heed, to look at. It's a Greek word, skopio. And if you have any understanding of the English language, most of the English language comes from other language. And it's where we get our word scope from. It means to aim or to point out, to look at. It's a to regard. And Paul is warning the Romans here is to note to put the crosshairs in the military term, when a sniper looks down his scope, he's putting the crosshairs on someone. That's his target. And that's what Paul is telling here is to target, to look at those who cause division and offense. Perhaps some of this division and offense were 
some of the Judaizers demanding Gentiles be circumcised, maybe perhaps the commanding of the observance of days, or even sexual immorality that perhaps would eventually creep in to these churches. So this was probably just a general statement from Paul saying anything that's counter to the theological terms that we've went over thus far, whether it be justification or propitiation, any of these terms, anything that's counter to any of what I have said through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mark those people. Put your crosshairs on those people, which is contrary to the doctrine that we have taught. And he goes on to say here, at the end of it, avoid them. Avoid them. Now, this is kind of interesting, is Paul tells his audience not necessarily to engage these false teachers, but to avoid them. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 here real quick. Paul is, of course, talking to the church at Corinth here who had a litany of issues. And he says this in verse 9 of chapter 5. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with the sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the extortioners or the idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a viler or drunkard or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So Paul is not saying here is that you should completely cut yourself off from the outside world. That's not possible at all. But it's someone who's disguising themselves as a brother or even perhaps a sister in Christ who was saying contrary doctrine, we are supposed to avoid those individuals. MacArthur makes a note in his commentaries. He says that we are to have a general knowledge to be able to defend the faith from certain heretics, but to tolerate them and give them a voice inside the church for debate can be dangerous. So he says to excommunicate them, avoid them, and disengage, excuse me, to disengage from them. So if someone's teaching contrary doctrine, they're to be avoided. It is a dangerous thing to then give that person a pedestal and say, hey, let's see whose side is better. If you give a heretic a pedestal, then oftentimes, as we'll see here later on, the simple, the hearts of the simple, people can be quickly carried away. So Paul says just avoid them in general if they're in the church. Kick them out. And excommunicate them. And I think we see that a lot of times. We see it throughout church history. A lot of times we say, oh, you know, it's different in our day. There's heretics in every single century, every single decade in the church. But how many times do people masquerade themselves and kind of hide themselves as orthodox and being doctrinally sound, yet they're still in the church teaching their heresies? Whether it be the acceptance of homosexuality or things such as critical race theory Oh, you know, we can tolerate those. Those are just a different form. No, those are heresies. And those people should be avoided and kicked out of the church, or at least not be acceptable inside of the church. It does not mean that we have to treat these people harshly. I I think um, one of the commentators said it does not mean we have to burn these people at the stake, as a lot of times uh, Christians did in the past, whether it be in the Inquisition or uh, Calvin's Geneva and other other areas, but they should be avoided. It doesn't mean physical harm or throwing them in prison necessarily, but we're supposed to disengage from them and flee from them. 
avoid them. And another thing too, well, let's go ahead and verse 18 here real quick. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. The deceivers know exactly what they're doing. They serve not Christ, but their own perverse reasons. Let's look at uh, Philippians 3, 18 and 19 here for a second. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And that was Paul writing his letter to the Philippians. And then Colossians, he says very similar, Colossians 2, 4, I say this, that no one will delude you with pervasive arguments. How many of us in here know a smooth talker? Someone who is very good with words. Someone who's very deceptive with their speech. In fact, some of the greatest villains in history were some of the greatest orators who were able to deceive thousands, if not millions. Their words simply just flow out of their mouth. They're very cunning and very sweet. It reminds me of uh, Proverbs chapter 5, where the writer is really warning young men the peril of adultery. And let me read verses 1 to 6 here in Proverbs chapter 5, because I think it's applicable to what Paul's saying here. The writer says, My son, pay attention to my wisdom, lend your ear to my understanding, that you may preserve discretion, and your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of hell. Lest you ponder her path of life, her ways are unstable, you do not know them. And I think we see that comparison here to the warning that the writer of Proverbs gives to young men that Paul's also giving the church of Rome and also to us for our edification that we're supposed to avoid these people who are smooth talkers. Their lips drip like honey, but as soon as it goes into our mouth, it's bitter. Uh, Apostle John, when he was in uh, Revelation, he received the one book and the the, the angel of the Lord told him to eat the book. And he ate the book and he said it tasted like honey, but then as soon as it got into his stomach, it was bitter. And I think that's a similar illustration here, is oftentimes these deceivers have great and fabulous words going into our ears, but they pervert and destroy the souls of men. And the interesting thing here at the end of it, by smooth words, flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. Simple, in other words, they're the misunderstood. The truth is, many a number of Christians are simple people with a simple understanding of Scripture. And that's unfortunately the truth. But that's been the truth for the last 2,000 years. Is a lot of Christians don't actually have an in-depth, thorough understanding of the Scriptures. That doesn't mean they're not believers. That's not to say that they don't have the Spirit inside of them but they kind of just remain flat throughout their whole life. And that's what Paul is saying here is that if that's a large minority or a small majority of Christians, then it's very easy for those people to be deceived. John Murray noted in this, the hearts of the simple, 
If you remember, and we'll look at this more in verse 20, but if you remember the Garden of Eden, chapter 3, what does Satan do? First of all, he goes to the weaker vessel, that is Eve. Adam was supposed to be in front of Eve, standing between Eve and the serpent. But what does the serpent do? That is the false teachers, is they don't go to the intelligent, they don't go to the strong or the wise, they go to the simple. And I'm, again here, I'm, I'm saying in the, crea- in the, in the uh, order of creation, the male is the head of the household. And it's a biblical truth. It's a biblical truth that Eve was confronted by Satan, and Satan did not confront Adam, and there was a specific reason for that. But we see that here is that Eve was the more simple between her and Adam. And when the serpent went before her, he deceived her, and then she deceived her husband. But John Murray said, did God really say? That's what Satan said. That's what John Murray was saying of Satan. Did God really say? Satan, these false teachers, like to put doubt inside of us. They like to put confusion in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can be really about anything. Does the Bible really say that about homosexuality? Does the Bible really say that about adultery? Does the Bible really say that about love, about marriage, about justification? You see how it's not completely abhorrent stuff. It's simply changing the truth slightly. Did God really say that? And you see how it completely avalanches in to apostasy and heresy in so many instances of these false teachers. And if you remember in Revelation, the first three chapters, where John receives the words from Christ, and Christ is talking to the, to the seven churches, whether Revelation was written before 70 AD or after 70 AD is kind of up for debate. But if it was written before 70 AD, this is even more tragic. Five of the seven early churches were either lukewarm, meaning they had no love or hate for Christ, they were sexually immoral, or they had completely apostatized. These were the seven churches built by the apostles. In such a short period of time, these false teachers had come in and completely deceived the simple and the churches of God. So if we think we're immune from it because we're so special, I think we're fooling ourselves. And that's what Paul is saying here to this church at Rome, is that if you think you're special or immune from it, watch yourself. Avoid these people, because they will deceive the hearts of the simple. Before I continue, anyone have any comments or questions? Verse 19 also connects with 17 or 18, or excuse me, 17 and 18. All right, let's continue. For your obedience has become known to all. For your obedience has become known to all. To all. So overall, verses 17 and 18 were not necessarily applicable to the church of Rome yet. They were just a general warning of things that could happen in the future. In fact, given from the verbiage of the first part of verse 19, it appears the church of Rome was thriving and flourishing with sound doctrine. Now we see a couple instances in the early part of this letter, whether it be in uh, Romans chapter 2 the Jews having a difficult time with the Gentiles, thinking that they were special, and even chapter 14. But considering and taking the view as a whole, as compared to the church at Corinth or the other churches, the church of Rome was actually doing very well. Verse 1, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 9, 
Paul says this. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Or excuse me, I wrote down verse 9, it's verse 8. First, I thank my God through Christ Jesus for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So we see this church at Rome has been doing very well. But again, Paul is stressing the importance of preserving their purity. And perhaps also Paul, maybe this was a general warning, but maybe he was getting the idea that this church had a little naivety. They were thinking that perhaps, since they were doing so well, they were immune from these challenges. If you remember Peter, it was in Luke 20, where Peter had proclaimed, he said, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's not even three paragraphs after that, where Jesus tells Peter, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you like wheat. It's that quick, where our faith can be turned and troubled. So Paul is again warning these people to have their head on a swivel. Uh, Tom, I asked if you would read Ephesians 5, 15, and 16. Are you ready? Yes. Would you mind reading that, please? Thank you. So we see again, Paul, his letter to the Ephesians, he says, walk circumspectly. What does that word mean? Prudently. It does not mean we charge full ahead. It means that we're completely aware of our surroundings, those who are coming in and outside of our church, and the doctrine and the things that we're listening to, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Keeping check on the time because the days that we live in, the days that the Romans lived in, the last 2,000 years are evil. And Satan, of course, is looking around whom he may be able to devour. Destruction is ever near. Yet fascinatingly enough, Paul continues on, Therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. This church was in the city of Rome. What do we know of Rome at this time? It was at the apex of its political, economic, and military power but also it was probably the immorality capital of the world. But yet this church of Rome, remarkably enough, according to the Apostle Paul, was thriving. So perhaps maybe in our day, as our culture continues to decline and slide, and it goes further and further away from God, perhaps the Lord, if he's gracious enough, maybe the church of Jesus Christ in America will thrive. Maybe we'll be thriving as the church of Rome was in such perilous times. So again, kind of going back to last week is if we have hope in Christ, he's able to do anything for us and he's able to keep us as he has done thus far with the church of Rome. It's not all pessimism. It's, all, it's not all negativity. I guess that's my point with our culture and what's going on. Why? Because God's immutable. He's on the throne. He's sovereign and he will preserve his people. And Lord willing, as we can pray, he'll preserve and even expand the church of Christ in America in these dark times. Again, persecution and expulsion appeared not to be a detriment to this church. So they were persecuted eventually, or under, uh, I think it was Claudius had expelled the Jews, and at this time they were able to come back in 
So you can imagine it was a very difficult time and place for these Roman, or, yeah, these, uh, Roman Christians to live, yet they're standing strong on their faith in Christ. And as he ends verse 19, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Again, it's a be prudent to be able to understand what's going on around us. And then verse 20 is kind of a conclusion to this section. Paul says this, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. This seems just to pop out of nowhere almost. If you were to read this whole chapter and then see, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Kind of just seems like Paul whimsically threw it in there. But the last couple of verses, what do we know is that the false teachers and the deceivers, they're really dark forces. They're really under the power and the persuasion of Satan. So it would be sensical for Paul, as he's finishing out this particular section, to say the archenemy, the archangel, Satan, or Lucifer, will eventually be crushed underneath your feet. And that's what's also interesting here, your feet. He's been crushed under Christ's feet, but he will be crushed under our feet. As the God of this world, he tries to sow discord in the church of God by sending, as Paul says in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians, angels of light to pervert the truth. Take here for a second, uh, let's look back here in church history. Notice most of the heresies that were developed in the early church, for example, were not far-off doctrines. Give you an example, in the 3rd and 4th century, um, Arius, he was the one who developed the doctrine of Arianism, where basically it denied the eternal existence of Christ. Arian said that Jesus was a creation. Now, that was a huge difference, but it was not a massive difference for the ordinary person to be able to see. You see, you understand what I'm saying here? Is that yes, that was the difference between eternal life and eternal death. But Satan, through the guise of Arius, slightly only changed the verbiage of, say, for example, John or Hebrews chapter 1, where instead of Jesus being eternally begotten, he was begotten sometime in the past or born of the Father or came from the Father. He was a creation. So we see that time and again, is that these heresies aren't necessarily something that are far-fetched, but they're just slight changes inside of the terminology by which we understand. Uh, For another example, 1548, the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church, justification. What do we know? Justification is by faith alone plus works. Faith equals justification, then works. But then in 1548, the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholics made the detrimental, eternal, significant statement that faith plus works equals justification. As I've drawn that example many a times, all three elements are there. But it's the simple reorganization of justification, faith, and works that makes it of eternal significance. So the point is here, as Paul is saying and warning his readers and his audience, is that it's only slight changes that are the difference between eternity in hell and eternity with Jesus Christ. So it is important for us to be able to make sure and measure that our doctrine is true. Matthew Poole said this, Suddenly, he says this about Satan, 
Suddenly, though now he rages, yet ere long he shall be thrown down. Some refer to this to the day of judgment, others to the time of Constantine, who overthrew idolatry. And that is not only a promise, but a prophecy also of the conversion of the Roman Empire. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I thought that was an interesting take. Is that perhaps Paul is saying here is that the crushing of Satan under their feet or the church's feet is when Constantine and then his son eventually made Christendom the official language, or not the official language, excuse me, the official religion of the Roman Empire. So just something to, to consider. And then finally here, we know that death has been defeated. And where was death defeated? At the cross. Exactly. And we know this devil has no real power outside of the sovereign hand of God. It was Luther who said, the devil is God's devil. That's remarkable to think about. He can't do anything outside of the power, outside of the authority and permission of Christ. But yet he's still a formidable foe that goes around. He's cunning, wise, and shrewd, and makes him a dangerous foe. He's a defeated foe. Satan knows, as again Luther wrote, and a mighty fortress is our God, he knows his doom is sure. As we get the picture in Revelation chapter 21, where whether it's real or whether it's just hyperbole or uh, for illustrative purposes, we see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and Satan gathers up the forces of the world, whether it be the kings and the people of the world, the dark forces, for one last grand siege against the new Jerusalem, And what does it say? The fire came down from heaven, destroyed them, and then threw them in the eternal pit forever and ever. So Satan knows that his time is short. But that does not mean that he is not a formidable enemy. Let me use a World War II example. Maybe it helped me. Maybe it doesn't help anyone else. But I'm the teacher, so I guess I get to make the rules of what I say up here. But uh, 1941... The Germans, as probably many of you know, they invaded the Soviet Union. And their goal was, by October, when they invaded in June, their goal was to completely crush the Soviet Union by October. Well, that failed. So then they, op- they, they uh, went with one more operation called Operation Typhoon to capture Moscow. And in January of 1942, they were 10 miles from Moscow, and the Soviets turned them back, and then that began the long retreat four years to Berlin. Now, the reason I say that is if you read a lot of commentaries and memoirs of German generals from World War II, you'll see that many of them say that in January 1942, that's when the Germans lost the war. They had no hope after that of winning after the Soviets turned them back from Moscow. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a lot more years of fighting there was still some of the bloodiest battles to go in 1942 and 43 and 44 and 45. So the point is, is that Christ, he turned back Satan. He crushed Satan and death at the cross. But that does not mean we don't have more battles, more bloody engagements and difficult times ahead. But what do we know is that we know is that Christ using us will crush the head of Satan. And I think that's encouraging for us, is that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean we're not going to lose our heads at the behest of Satan. But what do we know is that the victory is assured. And then he ends it, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Before I continue to verse 21, anyone have any comments or questions?
And Jehovah's Witnesses are simply just a, a manifestation of Arianism from the 3rd and 4th century. Christ is a creation. Okay. Uh, what did Ronald Reagan say? Peace through strength. Maybe not an exact context, but very good point. Peace through crushing the head of the serpent. And I guess that's a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, whereas after Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God said to, God said to Eve that he'll, he'll, Satan will bruise the Messiah's heel, but he'll crush his head. He'll bruise his head. And we see that fulfilled here in verse 20. Good points. All right, and we'll just read through verses 21 and 24 real quickly. Uh, these are just some names that Paul lists. Timothy, my fellow worker, Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. The New Geneva Bible study says, <clears throat> excuse me, the New Geneva Bible states, along with Silas, Timothy was Paul's closest co-worker following the disagreement with Barnabas. And also, as mentioned in 10 of Paul's letters, Lucius, who some identify with Luke, Jason, possibly Paul's host in Thessalonica, and Sosipater, were possibly church delegates accompanying Paul to deliver the collection in Jerusalem. So those are those people. Verse 21 or verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Paul regularly used a secretary identifying his letters as his own by a brief greeting written in his own handwriting. So Tertius, I think I'm saying that name right, was Paul's secretary. As you imagine, Paul was maybe standing there and this Tertius was directing, or excuse me, this was he was taking the direction of Paul what to write on the letter. He was basically Paul's personal secretary. And so he gets a little mention here. Verse 23, Gaius, Gaius, I think it's Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you, and Cordus, a brother. Paul may have been residing with Gaius at the time of writing. He is presumably to be identified with the Gaius of 1 Corinthians 1.14 and may be the same as Titus. Justice of Acts 18.7. And Arrestus is mentioned in Acts 19, 2 Timothy 4. We do not know whether this is the same man. And listen here. Of great interest is that a Christian held such a responsible post in the local government of Corinth. He was the treasurer. He was the one that basically paid all the bills of the city, which is a very important post. That would be like having... If you guys know the secretary or the uh, treasury secretary of the United States, Janet Yellen, that would be like her being a Christian. It's a very important post, and it's the same in Corinth as if this gentleman, this elected official, was a Christian. That's pretty important. And then finally, of Cordus, nothing is known outside of his mention, outside of his name here. We don't know who he is. And then verse twenty-four again. 
Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And that's a typical Pauline closing, is he is asking and extending that the Lord Jesus Christ extend grace to the people that are with them, and that he's writing this letter to. And then uh, let's motor here. Let's motor through these last couple of verses. Verses 25 to 27. Verse 25 says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. Now there is some doubt amongst scholars as to whether Paul actually wrote this particular section, verses 24, or excuse me, 25, 26, 27. The reason being is that in some early manuscripts, it's not necessarily there. And if it is there, it's actually in different parts of Romans. But the scholarly and theological consensus is, is that Paul actually did write this portion. So for our sakes, we'll say that Paul wrote it. Since it's in the New Geneva Study Bible, R.C. Sproul said it's good enough, then it's good enough for me. And then we look here. Now to him who is able to establish you, the one who establishes you is the one who will use you to crush Satan under your feet shortly. Matthew Pohl says, Our own weakness and Satan's power are such that unless God did establish us, we should soon totter and fall. Again, just a final warning, a final exhortation by Paul. God is the one who establishes us. As we saw in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, it's God who establishes his people and holds them to the very end. Notice these words. According to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past. This appears to be the final revelation found in Jesus Christ. Now, this revelation of this mystery kept secret since the world began. What is it? Not rhetorical. Quite easy. Yes, that. I think it also pertains... Yes, I think that, that is pertaining to that too, but also of Christ, his reconciliation of Jew and Gentile when he came on the cross. And to Uncle Ray's point, we see in the Old Testament... In numerous circumstances, whether it be the prophecy of Balaam in Numbers 23, or it be in Joel, where we see the Gentiles, we see time and again in the Old Testament, the Gentiles are named as having an eventual inheritance with the children of God. So that's part of the mystery. I think also the grand mystery, or the overall mystery, is the coming of Christ, who is the one who unites Jew and Gentile. Think here for a second. This was progressive revelation. It wasn't that as soon as Genesis 1 was written, God revealed the whole plot of what was going to happen. We can think that Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses, David, and the rest of the Old Testament saints saw God's promises, as we see in Hebrews 11. They saw God's promises, but they didn't see the final product. It's like they saw the colors, the artist, that is God, They saw the brush, the canvas, but they did not see the final picture. They saw all the ingredients. They saw the sin. They saw God redeeming Israel. They saw the establishment of the Davidic kingdom, but they did not see the final product. That is Jesus Christ. MacArthur says of the word mystery here, the word mystery is different in English as it is in Greek. 
Oftentimes we use our mystery as that of, of a novel, something that's not known. But in Greek, it was meant to be something that was previously unknown, but has finally been manifest. So the mystery that Paul is speaking here is known to the church of Rome. It was Jew and Gentile coming together, and it was the final revelation of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's the birth of Christ, that was the final revelation, or the beginning of the final revelation. What's striking is, we see, even after Christ rose from the dead, revelation, or the the final revelation, had not been known. Why do we know that? It's because even some of Christ's apostles had doubted if he had risen from the dead. And we even see in Matthew 28, at the ascension, we read these words, that when the apostles and the disciples, well, the disciples were Christ, even on the mount, they said, verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. So it wasn't until Christ ascended to the right hand of God, and the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, that the full revelation was given to mankind. The whole understanding is that Christ came to save sinners. What is the job of Christians? It's to praise the name and then proclaim the name of Christ. And then in in Acts chapter 2, where Peter is preaching to the Jews, and then the ministry of Paul preaching to the Gentiles, that's where we see the final revelation. And we see here the scriptures, the prophetic scriptures made known to all the nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God. In eternity past, the script was written. Not in some deistic way, or, yeah, no, deistic? Uh, deist, yeah, some deistic way where God just turns the clock and just lets it go. Now, the plans for Christ were written in eternity past. And then we see, for obedience to faith. John Murray says, wherever the gospel is preached, men are commanded to obey in faith. In verse 27, let's draw it to end here. To God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. All the doctrines, just some of the doctrines I have listed up here from Romans, all of the doctrines stem from the God who alone is wise and goes through Jesus Christ, the perfecter of our faith, the mediator of a better covenant, our intercessor, and the friend of sinners. What does Paul say? Amen. So I hope the last 13, 14 months were profitable. I I thoroughly enjoyed them, and thank you for, for being attentive to myself, and I think my uncle would also appreciate it. So thank you very much, and if you have anything else, please uh, let me know after Sunday school. Thank you.